Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 309 being recorded on Tuesday, August 29th. I'm your host, Jason Retail Gee Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. We are going to jump into the talk tonight because one of our most popular shows, as you know, Jason, uh, the format is a deep dive, and we have got a great deep dive for you guys this episode. Last Friday, August 25th, there was a very big event, uh, not only in our favorite worlds uh, of grocery, which is Jason's favorite world, and uh, my favorite world of e-commerce, and then Jason's favorite world of ads, but also in my favorite world of startups. So this is uh, this is a pretty big event, and we wanted to dedicate a complete episode to it. Um, and it is the filing of the S1 for Instacart. And just to set it up, the you know in in my world of startup land, it has been uh, very hard to get an IPO done. So there's been a couple post COVID in like late 2020, and then some in 21, and then there's been a dry spell. There's been something called a DSPAC. So you have this SPAC, which is this special purpose acquisition thing, and you can kind of go public through this kind of complicated, convoluted thing. Tends not to go very well. So there's been some of that. Like in my world of mobility, there was one called Get Around, and there's been a couple others. And those typically have not gone so well. They're down like 95%. Bird, the scooter company, did this as well. So it's been a very dry um, IPO market for startups and thus venture backed investors. So there has been a lot of anticipation around when is that IPO window going to open? Who's going to be brave enough to kind of stick their foot out there first? Um, and you know, a lot of people have been rumoring that Instacart would be out there. There's a couple other companies in this kind of unicorn uh, stratosphere. Stripe uh, is another one that we cover a lot on the show from the payments world. Um, there's also, uh, any others you can think of Jason? Um, uh, there's this one, there's a software one that is just doing really well in AI that's been mentioned a lot, not, not open AI. Um, it'll come to me in a minute. Um, so, so, you know, so this is kind of the, the real bang, the big bang of here's a company that is being brave enough. They're going to go first and we're going to see what happens. So it's going to be really interesting. And we thought because it hits this Venn diagram of all of our favorite things that we'd spend a fair amount of time on it. So first of all, um, yeah, this is a 400 page document. So our value add to you, the listeners, is we have distilled it down into what we think are the, the, you know, the most interesting little tidbits. Um, and some of the things we've learned from Instacart. Um, it is nice because there's been a lot of rumors about how Instacart's, um, you know, economics work and, um, you know, Jason has been tracking their ad piece, uh, which is, you know, CPGs have really seen some really nice results from that. So we know that's been active. Um, and the areas we picked apart, we thought we would cover tonight is I wanted to kind of give you a quick and dirty, um, you know, Scott's guide to uh, reading an S1. And we'll start at the cover page. That's There's actually a lot that happens on the cover page. So I want to spend a little time there and kind of give you a little 
uh, having taken a company public behind the scenes of what what's going on on there. And then we're going to talk about some of the overall growth things that just kind of help you understand how to think about Instacart, how they're growing and what they do and what role they play. And then uh, unit economics. Um, one of the things that is happening um, more and more in these S1s is they're doing a more comprehensive cohort analysis. And this is basically showing, hey, if, if I acquired a, a customer <clears throat> in a certain period, how are they doing now? And what are those trends? So that this, this had a lot going on there. Uh, of course, we want to talk about the ad business and then a little bit of a catch-all for other observations. Um, Jason, anything I missed before we jump into the cover page? No, I think you mostly covered it. Just one slight correction. It's four of our five favorite things. For those listeners that tuned in to hear us talk about Ahsoka, um, we're going to do that on an upcoming episode. So that Star Wars would yeah. be our fifth. Yeah, sadly, there was no Star Wars in this one. So it, uh, yeah, that one little part of the, over the Venn diagram was left as its own little circle out in space. Exactly. Um, That's a, We call that a, a teaser for a future episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're... Uh, we're pros. We're 300 plus episodes into this thing. And this is the kind of, you know, pro level that we deliver on the pod. You're welcome. <laughs> so, uh, and you guys missed it. Jason forgot to plug in his microphone earlier. So that's, uh, yeah, we're, we're still, still learning every day. So when you open an S1, the first thing you see is the cover page. And um, it, it, you know, a lot of people just breeze by it because it's a cover page, but it has a lot of really valuable information. Um, so first of all, the first thing that I noticed is I was searching for this on Edgar, uh, and I kept typing in Instacart and it wouldn't show up. And I was like, WTH, I know this S one's out there. Why can I not find it? And then I saw an article and it said, Oh, uh, the company's real name is Maple Bear. So that's the first thing you see on the cover is the company we all refer to as Instacart. Um, it's actual corporation name is Maple Bear and it does business as Instacart. So I thought, um, I did not know that prior. So that was, uh, the first thing I learned right there on the cover. So that's interesting. So if you do go to the, we'll put a link to the S1 in the show notes, but if you do brave the Edgar SEC database yourself, um, throw in a little Maple Bear there and not Instacart. Not to be confused with Amazon's house brand, Mama Bear. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I'm sure there's honey bear and brown bears. So there's there's a lot of a lot of bear things going on. Um, the other thing uh, that I always like to see is what symbol are they using? Um, I think it's fun to kind of you know as an entrepreneur to kind of think about what symbol you're going to use that best um, personifies your brand. Um, at Channelvisor, we had ecom, so that was an exciting one. So we we captured e-commerce, um, which Shopify is the, got, the best ticker symbol of all times. By the way, Scott. thank you. Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, Shopify had shop and that was a good one. And Instacart slash Maple Bear is going with cart. So I think that's a that's a that's a pretty nice one. You know, it, it kind of they're a multi grocer chart cart. And we all think about Instacart. I'm sure they hate being called Instagram. So this kind of like really punches on the cart. So maybe they get away from everyone mistakenly calling Instagram. I think it's solid. Yeah. Yeah. A plus on the symbol. Um. And then in the, you'll notice that a lot of the valuations and how many shares they're selling are blank. And that's, you know, in this draft of the S1, which is the first kind of public one that they're dropping out there, um, they'll, they'll iterate a couple more times. They'll do their roadshow. And then right when the, it prices, um, they'll update the S1 to include all that information. So they'll make kind of literally a, you know, a game day decision the night before, uh, the IPO of, how much based on the order book, uh, how much they want to sell and at what price. Um, so that, 
that's going to be blank through probably several more iterations um, as we go on. Then this is, did you uh, want to throw something in there? No, I was just I was just thinking that uh, they I I assume they left it blank because the underwriters were out of practice. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, no, they um, they are they're waiting, um, and that's a good point because when you go public, the the companies that take you public in this context, they're all investment banks on Wall Street, um, but they they fill this role of underwriters, and basically what they're doing is. Um, they're acting as market makers. They're going to cover your stock when it's public. Um, and they're also going to be basically pounding the pavement to sell your stock to buy side, um, uh, uh, buy side, um, analyst and firms on wall street, which there's two buckets of there's mutual funds and hedge funds. There's also retail. I guess there's three buckets. Um, retail would be you log into Schwab or Robinhood and the day of the IPO, you try to buy some shares. Um, that's retail. Um, and they all allocate a little bit of that for the IPO. So they like retail to come in and get a little taste. Um, a lot of folks that um, if you're an accredited investor at an institution and you have a wealth manager, sometimes you can get a little bit of access to an IPO before it prices. Um, it, you don't get a special price or anything, but you can, if you're really excited and you're a retail customer you and you're in you know this kind of um, – wealthy bucket, then you can, you can get some allocated shares. I think is what they call it. They used to call this friends and family. They don't call that that anymore. That's called uh, allocated shares. Um, but what's important about the underwriters is there's actually a signal. There's several signals here. And I didn't know this until I went through the process. Um, uh, first of all, they have lined up a who's who of investors. So, so even before you get to underwriters, they they have this really interesting note right before right underneath before they get into underwriters and they say, oh by the way we have lined up these investors already that have committed to buying and they have committed asterisks and then they kind of like take away the committed but it I think that's a legality I think I think it's a pretty hard commitment is my reading of that um, and they basically say these guys are already these guys have lined up to buy uh, at least four hundred million in this offering regardless of the price. Um, and there's some big names in there. Um, they're what I would call public private. So they have invested in Instacart already as a private entity. And then they have another side of their firm that invests in public entities. And they have said that side is going to support the private side. And that's Norges Bank, um, TCV, Sequoia, and a couple others. This is very unusual, but I think it's an interesting play because it basically says to the market, Hey, you don't have to worry about this thing, you know, tanking on the first day because we're going to, we're signaling to you, we're going to place a chunk of this with these folks that are long term holders and they're going to backstop this thing. I think of it as a, a, you know, adding a floor to the IPO, basically saying, we know it's been a while. We know there's a risk out there. We're going to have a floor on this. So, so there's built in demand for this IPO. So that that's quite unusual, and this is the first time I've I've ever seen anything like that. Sometimes you'll see T Rowe Price is a big one, a big mutual fund that likes to do this, where they'll have a private public and they'll say, you know, they'll kind of suggest that they're interested in buying more, and they'll they'll come out and say they don't plan to sell or they've accepted a lockup for a year or something like that. I've never seen such a strong message as this one, so I, I thought that was interesting. Okay, uh, and then we move to the bottom of the cover, and that's where you have the list of the underwriters. Um, and the, what's really interesting is the way this works is the bigger your font, the bigger a role you play in the IPO. 
Um, so on this one, the biggest font is uh, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan. Um, you know, they have, I don't know, what would you say, Jason, like a 40 point font? Um, you're yeah, I, I, yeah, I had uh, to read it yeah. with my uh, my PDF uh, zoomed way up. So I, I, I feel yeah. like I, yeah, but it was a big font. Yeah. Yeah. So those guys get like a, you know, they're, they're kind of really big. And um, then what's also interesting is where you show up on the page is important. So your importance starts at the left and goes down to the right. So the most important, what we would call the vernacular is the lead left, which is the biggest font on the left side of the cover is the lead investment bank. And it's Goldman Sachs. And they're, they're the bluest of blue chips. Uh, everyone wants Goldman Sachs to take them out. Um, and then usually you want either JP Morgan or Morgan Stanley. Now, um, JP Morgan has increased greatly in stature over the last three years because they have weathered COVID and they have, um, they basically absorbed most of Silicon Valley banks deposits and a lot of these other riskier banks. Um, and, um, their CEO is, is, you know, pretty famous Jamie Dimon. So they've, you know, this is kind of, you know, two blue chips, uh, on the top of the book here, which is pretty interesting. And then, um, then you kind of go down a bit and you end up with 18 more underwriters. And there's like three levels of them. There's like the font gets smaller. So you go from 40 point to 20 point. And then you go to like kind of like 15 point and then you go to seven point. And, you know, what's interesting is I have never seen this many underwriters either. So, so they basically have said, um, we want everyone on Wall Street aligned to go and help us sell this. We will turn no rock, no, no rock will be unturned looking for buyers of Instacart stock with the institutional investors. Um, there's some international players. So, you know, they, they've basically, um, if you kind of said, if you, if you, if you war roomed out, what are some things a company could do to de-risk an IPO? They have uh, done things I've never seen before times like three. Um, and then the last thing that's interesting is, um, the economics each of these banks gets kind of depends on where they are on the page. So, you know, if, uh, um, and, and all this gets into like, there's all this machinery, but you know, these guys do it cause they make money. So Goldman will make their kind of highest percentage and then JP Morgan and so on and so on, um, based on how much they contribute to the book and all this kind of calculus that goes on behind the scenes. So, so I thought that was kind of a really interesting, um, just on the cover, some things that were very unusual from other IPOs I've seen. Jason, anything that uh, uh, you found on the cover that was riveting? Um, well, no, I did have a question for you, though. Like, I, I guess I, uh, when I saw all of those underwriters, I kind of, and uh, perhaps erroneously, assumed that part of what was going on here is uh, that it's been a while since there were any IPOs that went through an underwriter and that all of the underwriters are out there desperate uh, for for deals um, and that therefore uh, uh, Instacart had more more leverage to get more underwriters. Like, is it is it literally Instacart just agreed to pay more fees to more underwriters to de-risk the IPO? Is that? Yeah, I think... So human nature is that the lead left and lead right want to absorb a lot of the deal and don't want to share too much. So, so, so typically there's some friction there, right? So they'll be like, 
Yeah, you could add a couple, and they use this tiering language. I, I don't. Yeah, you know, this is just kind of how I. I don't know who how they know what who's what tier, but tier one is Goldman, Morgan, and J.P. Morgan, uh, Morgan Stanley, and then tier two is you get kind of Stiefel, um, a couple others in there, and then you go tier three, and then you kind of have like an international kind of tiering as well. Um, so usually you get like two from tier one, you know, maybe two or three from tier two, and then that's kind of it. And then if you've, if the company feels strongly, like, um, another consideration is when you go public, um, one of the things that helps you long-term is to have analysts that follow your stock. And we've had many of these analysts on our show, Mark Mahaney, Colin Sebastian, these are, um, and then Scott Devitt, um, he was at Stiefel and he's moved on to another shop. Um, these are, these are famous people in the internet marketing world. So you want, um, I think Mark's at, uh, what's the name of his firm? I want to say Evergreen, but that's not it. Evercore. Evercore. So, so you as the company can say to Goldman, Hey, I know you guys want to keep a lot of the economics, but I want Mahaney on this and we got to get Evercore on. Um, so, so some of those on the bottom are probably international distribution, retail, or something the company wanted kind of specific to add them on. And, you know, that was all pre-negotiated with Goldman getting lead left. They, they, they kind of had to acquiesce to having a bit of a large number of underwriters on there. So, so I don't, yeah, I don't think, I'm sure they all wanted to be to your point. Like there certainly wasn't anyone saying no to being invited to, to this. And they probably, you know, you do this bake off and this was, I can't even imagine if they ended up with 18, like how you know, they must've started with 80. I, I don't know. It's crazy. <laughs> that was probably like a, six week bake off just to hear from all the bankers. Um, so yeah, so I think that there's more around the analysts going on with, with the large number uh, on some of those. Got it. And then I, uh, I wanted to hear your speculation about where the price might come in. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to remember the details. There's been a lot of interesting things going on with the private placements before we got to this point. Right. So I think that, uh, some of the, the valuations of the private placements were at some point disclosed. And then I want to say Instacart reset their, their valuation at a lower number while they were still private, like presumably to make um, the, the equity appealing for employees. Yeah. The sequence of events, and, and this is all, um, you know, they don't disclose all this in this one because it's kind of like uh, sure. dirty laundry. I'm just trying to and get the the yeah, run up. The whispers, and if you read some of these, you know, I subscribe to a lot of these things that talk about some of this kind of rumors. And so so take it with a grain of salt. But there was some sequence like they were chugging along and then COVID hit and it was like off to the races vertical. And I think the wheels kind of came off the bus and they started to lose money because unit economics weren't weren't ready for for like a surge like that. And then right around 21, they replaced the CEO and they had to kind of emergency raise some capital, which is kind of like one of the worst times to do it. Because even though their revenue was surging, the rest of the market was in in, in the, the toilet, basically. So so I think they had to do a down round. And what I've heard is they're, they had raised money as high as $39 billion, And then they took this haircut at, with this new CEO and this kind of re, you know, leaning down the company at about $13 billion. So so I think that's kind of like the watermark is kind of where they've last raised money. And if you look at their revenue, that's actually not, that's a very reasonable place given where, you know, they've grown since then, but now what's their revenue? Like 4 billion ish. 
Yeah, so they're like three billion and twenty-two in revs. So that's like a four times revenue, which is pretty reasonable for a company growing the the way they are with with good profitability. So I would be I would not be surprised. We we don't we won't know this per share price until we see the denominator, and they didn't have the denominator, which is market cap divided by number of shares equals share price. We don't know the number of shares. So I would I would suspect. I'll guess four billion. I'm gonna guess twenty billion would be a low. Like I think it will price there on the low end, and it could go as high as twenty five thirty. Um, depends on you know retail and and how much momentum it gets um, with with buyers. And part of the art here is you don't you don't want to price it too low because that may, means you. You left money on the table when you you sold your equity, um, but you also don't want to price too high and have uh, the the stock like go down from the offering price and get below water right away, right? So, yeah, it's very common. Um, you know, we we kind of had this situation at Channelizer. We went public right after, you know, quote unquote, right after in, in a longer time window of oh eight oh nine and. You know, they strongly, uh, and we had Goldman lead left, and they strongly encouraged us to think long term and not get obsessed about that pricing and leave a little bit of money on the table. Um, and, um, you know, and then over time, you could do a secondary at a higher price. And you, you really want to, you don't want to tank, um, especially in a tepid market. So I'm, I'm sure this was all part of the, um, you know, Goldman would counter negotiate this to be lead left and say, look, we, we need your commitment that you're, you're you know, part of the, the pitch is they give you what they think it's worth and how it's going to price. And they also discuss the strategy and that's part of the selection processes. Um, and you would think it would be, okay, whoever says they're going to give me the highest price, but you actually kind of, they really stand out a lot because the Goldman people can talk about, you know, they've, they've got like a lot of data to back up their strategy. And, you know, there's like quants in there that, that are, you know, that would make your head spin. Um, so they do a really good job of talking about why it makes sense to price the way they think and and how how they see it over a longer arc of time. Gotcha. So the guys with all the money have a really good justification for why you shouldn't worry so much about the money. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing to know though is what what typically happens is um, you are not sharing. You're not selling anyone's shares. So the company. So as part of this IPO, um, the company will issue new shares. So, um, so you as the founder and the other investors, you still have your shares. You're not actually selling them at this moment. So, you know, um, in a way, now you get diluted, right? So the the flip of that is your percent ownership goes down. But you know, it's kind of the would you take a little bit smaller, um, you know, of that, and long term, when you can sell your shares um, as the investor and the founder and the team. And the the people that bet on you now, um, you know, can you execute and deliver and then earn your way into a higher price? And then that's when you can kind of like get some liquidity. Yeah. So and do you want a little bit of a grapefruit or all of a grape? Yes, exactly. Yep. That is a good, good description. Um, okay. So here's, uh, here's the other part of the quick and dirty guide to reading the S1. You can take, so the cover is really good. And then you take literally the next, uh, let's see, what is it? 
uh, 100 pages and you can toss them. So this is where the lawyers come in and they love to make sure you understand all the risk factors. You know, a meteor could hit the earth. People could stop needing groceries, uh, cybersecurity. Uh, it could be no one wants to shop for them. It could be they'll compete with a bunch of people. Uh, Amazon is always a risk factor, Google, Microsoft. Um, so all that really doesn't add value. And then there's a little bit of financial stuff, but it's it's um, pretty dry and it's kind of like from the auditors almost. So it's it's like super dry. So what I always do is you skip to the part of this one where finally the lawyers have earned their large fees and they vomited forth a hundred pages of risk, um, uh, you know, stuff. And then you get to write your story and that's called the management's discussion and analysis. Um, in the industry, it's called the MD and a, um, it's confusing. I thought for a long time it was MD and a, because everyone says MD and a really fast and, mm -hmm. and they're, they're saying the word a and D and it's, it sounds like an N to me. And I kept saying, what the heck does MD and a stand for? And they're like, what do you mean? What's, what are you saying? And it, it's like a who's on first, kind of <laughs> but it's MD and A. So management's discussion and analysis. And I'm this so is where you. Because I, I read all 100 pages um, and and I'm super depressed. And one of the risk factors is the AI could become sentient and take over the earth. Mm, yep. It, that is a risk factor. And then uh, it will bring our groceries to us, I guess, as we are batteries for its consumption. The, the computers won't eat. <laughs> um, so if you really want, uh, you know, so what you can do is you can get the gist of 95% of this by printing out the S one pages, one Oh one to one twenty four. That's it's only 23 pages and it's really dense, but it is actually, um, you know, this is actually a very good read. They did a very good job of making this. So, you know, um, it's very approachable. Um, and they go into a level of detail that's really handy and super helpful. So, we're going to give you some of the highlights from that. But if you want to go deep on your own, um, we will give you all you need to go to the next level just by looking at those 23 pages. Um, okay. So uh, what did you see in the MDNA that got your attention? Um, well, I mean, a, a number of things. So maybe just super high level. What's exciting to me, like obviously a lot of this information about the business was not publicly available. So in the process of, of going public and issuing S1, they suddenly reveal a lot of things and they reveal things about their own business, but they also have to paint a pretty good picture of what they think is happening and could happen in the digital grocery business. So it's kind of like um, getting a, a whole class of really smart people to sort of write a thesis about the, the digital grocery business um, that we get to to read and interpret. Um, and you know, we, they reveal things that we didn't know, like how, um, valuable customers are over time and, uh, how much, uh, consumers spend on a given order at Instacart and what percent, uh, share of wallet they think, uh, digital gets versus brick and mortar and all, all these sorts of things. And we'll get into a bunch of them in the, in the individual sessions, um, but my, my takeaway from the beginning of that management discussion was, um, that it's a, a pretty robust business that the, the aggregate amount of, um, uh, GTV that they, uh, that they have, um, is, is pretty significant. It's, it's $28.8 billion, uh, in groceries that they sold in 2022. 
Yeah, and GTV is gross transaction value. So Instacart's basically a marketplace like eBay or Amazon where parts of parts of Amazon, all of eBay, where you have um, in the marketplace, a product marketplace you use GMV. A lot of payment systems like PayPal use TPV, gross merchandise value, total payment volume. They have chosen to use this term for the gross figure of GTV. Um, and at first I thought it was going to be groceries. Did you? Um, but it's gross transaction value. I thought yeah. for sure it was like grocery. I was trying to decode it without looking it up. And I was like, that can't be grocery because then I don't know what a TV is doing there. Um, and, you know, so then their revenue is a derivative of that, meaning, a, you know, some percentage then of that big number falls to them as revenue after they pay the grocer, the shopper, um, and then Instacart, the business has the leftovers and, and you know, which ends up, uh, we'll go through it in unit economics. It ends up being, being uh, you know, pretty small because the grocery business does not have huge margins. Yeah. So kind of looking at those business fundamentals um, that, you know, in 2022, they sold 28.8 billion dollars worth of stuff, which um, for them generated two point five billion dollars in revenue. Um, and they were profitable on that revenue. They they net four hundred and twenty eight million dollars, um, which like uh, back in the. A couple of years ago, when there were more IPOs happening, there were there were IPOs in the space that were happening with companies that still weren't profitable. So, um, so that was interesting that they they were meaningfully profitable. And then the uh, you know you're you're super interested in what the growth tra- trajectory is. Um, and 2019 was a very small year. So going from 2019 to 2020, you know, and then the pandemic happened in the middle of 2020, and everyone was ordering groceries from from uh, Instacart. So the, the growth in 2020 was astronomical, like 300% or something like that. But then the growth in 2021 over 2020 was 24% um, on revenue. And the growth in 2022 over 2021 was 39% in revenue. So the revenue growth is meaningful and accelerating, um, which would be exciting. They they were not profitable in 2020 or 2021. So 2022 was the first full year that they were profitable. Um, the GTV is a little different, though. Uh, they had significant growth, uh, 300% in 2020, 20% in 2021, and 16% in 2022. So uh, while they have a track record of growth, it's uh, the top line G- GTV uh, growth is decelerating. Um, and then, of course, we're halfway through 2023, so they, they have to disclose how, how well they've done in the first six, six months of this year, and they compare that to last year. Um, and the, the revenue and GTV are both essentially flat in the first six months of this year versus last year. So um, I don't know, you'll have to tell me, but I look at that and, and you go, man, there's some robust stuff here. There's a great growth story. Oh, I should have mentioned that that's on an annual basis. On a quarterly basis, they have five consecutive quarters of profitability, which also seems um, impressive and, and pretty favorable. But it's it's probably a slight worry that the uh, a lot of that growth seems like it's it's leveling off in 2023. I don't know if if um, that the the most recent performance gets gets overweighted or underweighted in sort of evaluating the the prospects for the company. Yeah, the buyers will, you know, what every everyone has a different way they value things and they they're going to 
build their own models and the company will give them some guidance. That's some of the stuff we didn't, we're not going to go over. Um, and, but you have to be careful because you don't want to make forward looking statements. So this is this weird dance you do of you, mm-hmm. you try to get people excited by not saying anything about the future, which is, which is a little tricky. <laughs> um, so, you know, what I imagine Instacart's just reading the tea leaves again, they talk a lot about how they don't really do much sales and marketing, which I kind of read to say, look, we really hunkered down on our unit economics and we've got it dialed in right now. And, um, Spoiler alert, when we get to ads, a lot of a lot of that has come from this ad um, piece. And I think now if I was an investor and, and I was you know, the bullish scenario is, you know, they're gonna raise at least four hundred million, they'll probably raise a lot of money from this. They could start doing some advertising and you know, pick up some new customers that again, I'm gonna kinda hope they look at the cohorts, those cohorts look like with what is in here, and they have at least the same unit economics, if not better. And I'm going to look at this growth accelerating while um, what Wall Street loves, their favorite, 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 kind of the top quadrant is accelerating revenue growth um, and accelerating profitability. And, you know, I could see a scenario, a lot has to go their way, but I could see a scenario where that works here. You know, if they could, if they could start spending some really careful sales and marketing dollars, building the brand where they, they've been kind of under the radar um, for the most part, um, and then that works, those cohorts stick, and then they can work on the economics because that's going to bring more advertisers per order. You know, the more average, more orders and more uh, GTV is going to bring more CPGs in that want to advertise against that. Then you could argue accelerating revenue growth, accelerating profitable unit economics. So that, I think that's the bull case. The bear case is they've hit saturation. They've got all the stores. 4% is anemic and nowhere to go but down. so that's yeah it is it is going to be interesting to see there's a little bit of a tale of two cities and those possible outcomes yeah yeah what else jumped out at you um in the management discussion um they they made a big point of talking about they have 7.7 million um monthly active users which is a good number but you know they point out that in the u.s there's 330 million um consumers uh or i guess the population um so they they use that and this is kind of like one of those hints i was talking about to basically said hey we're, we're, we're we've done good to get here but these are like the early adopters we still have a long way to go there's a lot of people um you know i don't think they'll get all of them and i'll talk about that in a second um, but there's a lot more people that you know should be using our service that aren't is so so they kind of paint that 7.7 million and say that's teeny tiny compared to where we should be um, and then, you know, the other thing they talked about that I thought was interesting, I wanted to get your opinion on is they talk about per user per month, they get $317. And I was wondering, I know you probably know this off the top of your head. Um, uh, you know, what is, you know, if you look at the average U S consumer and you probably look at the population of the convenience rates, like a, a kind of probably like that hundred K and up household, um, you know, what is their monthly and is this like half of it, a quarter? Like, what do you, what does your spidey sense tell you on that? Yeah. So real rough numbers, um, the average American family and, you know, people shop for groceries in households versus people. So it's almost better to talk in households. So there's like 131 million households in the U.S. And so, and yeah. they've got, uh, 7 million of them as customers. Um, 
the average household shops for groceries 1.6 times a week and they spend $100 per visit. So um, you kind of, you know, uh, rough that up um, and you get, get, uh, what is that? Uh, I'll have the intern do, intern do the math. 1.6 times 100 times... 4.5 is uh, 720 total grocery spend, which I don't have the uh, census uh, numbers in front of me, but but that passes the smell test. That So yeah. households are spending six, 700 bucks a month and Instacart saying that, that they're getting less than half of that. Yeah. And I saw some people speculate on this that, what what they're inferring is so they have an they have an average order of one ten so this is like two point six Instacarts a month, Instacart orders per user per month. Um, that's another kind of interesting metric. And then people are speculating and saying the pattern is probably people are doing a big shop once a month and they're kind of going and getting you know a lot of like maybe canned goods and things like that, and then they supplement it with two or three Instacart visits to bring maybe a refresh of the, the replenishables, like the cheese, the milk, the veggies and the fruits kind of thing. Um, th- again, this is everyone just kind of like taking data and, and kind of going out for data points. So the, you know, the cone of uncertainty is pretty big out there, but it kind of passed my sniff test. That's, that's how we've used it before at our house. Um, with the exception of we use it a lot at work to fill our snack area at work. And we're probably like, we're probably like, you know, top one, quartile of, of this whole thing is the number of snacks we, we get from Instacart. Yeah. And you think uh, there's, is it, do you, does that, that analysis of the one big shop yourself and then supplement, does that? No, exa- right? yeah. I mean, I, I think the grocer's talk and I, uh, I hesitate to bring this up because I don't think I remember all four off the top of my head, but there's like four typical types of shopping missions, right? So there is that like pantry stocking shop. There's like a weekly shop. There's a, occasion based shop where you're you're it's date night or it's Christmas or whatever and you you make a special shop. Um and then there's those top off shops. Um and I, I think it's it's generally agreed like there there's not a, a big cohort of of consumers that have just said, I'm never using a grocery store again that I'm exclusively gonna have all of all of my my calories show up at my doorstep. Um, so digital grocery ends up being one of the tools in the family's tool, uh, kit for, um, procuring their, their calories. And so it, it, it makes total sense that they would have a share that one of the ways they could grow is to increase that share, um, presumably by being the best choice for more of those different kinds of missions. Yeah, and in the MDNA, they talk a lot about how they have these new offerings where you can get a weekly Monday thing, and they're they're definitely poking around at this, experimenting on on how to to grow this, and and you know again they're kind of signaling we think we've got some room to go on this. We can get that average order up, and we can get the MAUs way up. Um, the second thing I noticed was um, you know they use this they use this phrase several times. So you can tell it's kind of like must be tied to company values, and they talk about. You know, we believe people want selection, quality, value, and convenience. Um, if that sounds familiar to you, um, the you know this is infamously 
brought up in the Amazon Jeff Bezos first shareholder letter in 1997, where he he talks about the mark, you know, what Amazon believes, and they believe that a multi-decade trend is people will not get tired of selection, quality, value, and when value he uses kind of free shipping like versus product value, he's pretty specific on it, and then convenience. And then what got me thinking about this is. Value and convenience are, um, you know, they're uh, often in conflict. Um, and this is the whole point of, um, you know, we've had uh, Casey on the show from Deloitte, their bifurcation kind of model, which shows this was this. I think a lot about this because this is one of the whole reasons I started Spiffy. And we, we decided early on, if we're going to be convenient, we can't be the cheapest. Um, and I don't think people look at Instacart as the cheapest. You know, whenever we use it, it's kind of like, holy cow, this is this is a pretty expensive treat. And, you know, I really kind of need to be able to justify this to myself that I can't just pop over the grocery store and do this myself. It needs to be, you know, uh, you know, some, you know, some, some reason I'm going to miss a kid event or something that I'm getting a really good bang for the buck here. Um, so I thought that was interesting that at some point I wonder, do they, that value part, I, I kind of struggle with, you know, how yeah, I, I think they have to have that. a, uh, a more liberal definition of value because I think you're exactly yeah. right, right? And obviously, you know, value means different things to different people. Like they they disclose later in the S one that they not surprisingly that they skew disproportionately to affluent households that make over mm-hmm. hundred thousand a year um, compared to a traditional retailer and particularly a traditional grocer. Like if if I I have no idea what it looked like when they actually did it, but when Kroger went public or certainly when Walmart went public. They would have talked about the top of their tree that we think the consumer really values price. Um, yeah. And, and Walmart probably said price, not value. <laughs> yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, they built a business around very aggressively maintaining those low prices because they thought that was the beginning of their flywheel. And, and, you know, Amazon talked about value, but they, when they said value, a lot of what they meant was, and we're going to, you know, uh, have the very competitive or the lowest price on a lot of these goods. And, uh, the, the, the business model of Instacart makes it unlikely that that can be their positioning. So they have to kind of find a, a valid, but alternative definition of value to hang their hat on. Yeah. And, um, I thought it was interesting. They put, convenience a little, you know, last, and you may say, Oh, you're reading too much into it, but you know, I, I've been in rooms and you spend so much time on every word. There, there's a purpose <laughs> to this order of selection, quality, value, and convenience. And, um, and they, they mentioned this exact phrase like several times. So this is a, you know, this seems to be an, you know, a pretty important phrase in their, their world. So I just thought that was, I want to get your take on, you know, at some point they may cross this road where they have to pick a lane and it'll be, yeah, you know, it ain't going to be the value lane. <laughs> you know, I, I don't see a path there, but you know, maybe they think they can. And you know, they also talk about selling to the grocers some software, so maybe that's kind of like how they're squeaking that in. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's, I, I, I think we'll talk about this in in our final conclusion. But the there's multiple ways you could see this going over time, and depending on which path it took, like it, it, value could mean something different. Yeah. So we'll we'll come back to that. Uh, I I heard you uh, like um, dissected all of the the disclosed data and put together a unit economic model for for Instacart. 
Yeah, so it starts at the top. So the GTV per order, so every order that comes in, they get, uh, you know, the GTV is $110. Um, and then there, here's how they slice the onion. So um, a, the biggest chunk goes to the grocer for the groceries, and they get 83%, which is $91. So right off the top, we're left with $19. Uh, but now the grocer, they have to go make all their money. So, you know, Instacart is, is you know, that's what you would basically get, um, I think, if you and I went to the grocery store. You know, maybe they're getting a little bit of a discount, but they're they're taking that $91 and they're adding $19 on top of it. And this is all X tip. There's a, there's a, there is a delivery fee and whatnot. Um, so then the shopper gets 8.2% or $9 in order. And that's in that delivery fee. And then they and get the sorry, tips. Clarification on shopper, because like in most contexts, shopper would mean the consumer that's buying the goods. The shopper in this case is, is a Instacart um, gig worker that goes to the store and gets, uh, aggregates the order for the customer. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the gig worker is the shopper. So they get $9 and they get hundred percent of the tip. So whenever you, you know, whenever you, what, what they don't say, and some of these gig places, and this bothers me because we've spent a lot of time on this. They say the, the gig worker gets hundred percent, but then they take a transaction fee of 3%. Um, now I can't find, they say hundred percent. I can't see any little asterisk that says there's going to skim 3% or something. Um, so yeah. So, so the hopefully they're being super upfront and they the the gig worker does get 100% of the tips but the tips aren't in the economics they kind of sit over on the side they go they kind of bypass Instacart altogether and they go straight to the shopper uh, who also gets $9 from Instacart so if you gave a $20 tip the the shopper's going to get 20 plus 9 or 29 then uh, at this point we are finally at Instacart's revenue, which is um, ten dollars, and that's in two pieces. Seven dollars is the transaction revenue, and three is ads. So almost half their margin, you know, so thirty percent. I guess you know, uh, I, I say half because the line is growing so fast it will become half probably by twenty twenty four. You know, half the profit, uh, the margin, the revenue that they get, um, and probably a disproportionate part of margin is from the ad piece, which we're going to talk about in detail. So, so that is, that's pretty important to this whole enchilada. And until they figured that out, this didn't really work. I don't think so they get, so $110 order, $91 goes to the grocer that leaves us with 19 shopper gets nine. We're left with 10, seven of that is the transaction revenue. Three is ads. Then their costs come out. They have three dollars of cost per order, um, and this is this is things like um, you know their entire some allocation of all their website hosting, the engineering team to build the app. I don't know if they would put sales and marketing in there. They, they weren't very specific about what they do and don't put in cogs, so that was a question mark. Um, and they're left with seven dollars of gross profit for that order. Um, my bet is marketing is not in there and, and they kind of take that out later. But again, they, they didn't really disclose that I saw what all was and not in COGS. So basically that 110 boils down to $7 of profit from them. And if we looked at it, uh, you know, um, I bet that three of that seven is basically from the ads and, and, you know, because there's almost no cost to serve an ad. And so, so I thought that was pretty interesting that, that like, you know, around half of the profit basically is from the ad system. Yeah, I think, I think it's for sure. Interesting. And like, uh, you know, two possibilities there, their their 
average value of an order is 110 bucks. A traditional brick and mortar grocer is a hundred bucks. Um, and so one question, like the Instacart wasn't totally clear. I mean, they tried to take credit for having a higher order value, but it wasn't clear. Like, do we think there's something unique about our experience that causes people to spend more? Um, or is our service just more expensive? And so therefore, you know, if I got the same 60 items from, from Walmart, it would cost me a hundred dollars. But if I got it from Instacart, it costs $110. Um, but if it's the latter, uh, and I'm sure the real answer is somewhere in between, but, uh, but if it's the latter, then you go, you know, all of the, the profit that Instacart is potentially taking is kind of from the, the convenience spread where they're, you know, getting consumers to pay more for the extra convenience of this grocery delivery. Mm. Yep. Um, so that was the unit economics. What did you discover from the cohorts? Yeah. Well, I think we both, we both noticed um, that they, they had a pretty detailed cohort analysis um, in the S one. And, and by cohort analysis, what we mean is um, they, they break down all the revenue they get from uh, every group of customers on the first year they acquire those customers. And then they track the spending for that group of customers in each subsequent year. Um, and so you have a cohort that you acquired in 2017. You have a cohort you acquired in 2018, so on and so forth through this 2022 cohort. And there, there's... Other dimensions you could do co co cohort analysis on, but this this uh, tenure cohort is most common. Um, and loyal listeners of the show will know we've certainly talked about it before, no most notably uh, with a guest, uh, Professor Dan McCarthy um, from Emory University, um, who who spends a lot of time uh, talking about and thinking about cohort analysis. Um, so I, my first thought when I saw this cohort analysis is I'll bet you Dan McCarthy's really happy right now. Um, and is probably, uh, deep, deep into these numbers. Um, and he has a phrase, um, that he calls, uh, super annuities, which is for the circumstances where the older cohorts get more valuable over time and keep contributing more revenue to your business, which is, you know, that if you think about it, that's that's the ideal state, right? You want those kind of six-year-old cohorts to be growing and be your most valuable. And if they're, you know, significantly tailing off over time, then like, you know, you, you start to question the core value proposition of the business. Like maybe customers get fatigued with your business or decide it's not a good value in the long run or something else. So um the the big takeaway for me of the cohort analysis is the cohorts grow over time. Um, the if you look at like the year one value of of this cohort, it averages two hundred twenty six dollars, and then it goes up thirty three percent in year two to three hundred dollars, and then up sixteen percent to three hundred fifty dollars in year three, and then up another sixteen percent to four hundred dollars in year four, and then up ten percent to four hundred forty five dollars in year five and up another 8% to $480 in year six. Um, and so like fundamentally that is a, uh, a very good picture of uh, the value of the cohorts. And I'm certain why they chose to include the cohort analysis in their S1. Cause I, I don't believe there's any, any filing requirement to, to do that. And certainly lots of companies don't include any cohort 
cohort analysis. Um, but then my kind of secondary take is, uh, you know, not every year is the same. And so some of those cohorts like started before COVID and then their, their behavior was slightly impacted by their maturity, but also impacted by COVID. And some of these cohorts started after COVID. And so one of the things you would look for in that cohort analysis is, did these guys just get a big spike from COVID when people were afraid to go to grocery stores and, you know, has that worn off, right? And that's kind of a common common narrative out there. Like, I argue it's it's mostly misunderstood when people give that narrative um about digital but it's it's even more likely that it's misunderstood if you if you have that narrative in grocery because grocery appears like on the surface to be the one category where hey we're at three percent e-commerce penetration before covid and now we're at 12 percent e-commerce penetration um and so this these cohort analysis if if there was a spike that dipped back down you would expect to see some of the later cohorts underperforming versus the the pre-covid cohorts um, and we don't see that, right? It, they, uh, like all the cohorts, uh, grow and they grow over time. The rate of growth slows down over time, which is like, I think pretty, pretty typical and not surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, so all that was super favorable. The one thing, and we'll, <laughs> we'll have to have Dan on the show, but the one thing that I think wasn't in here that you'd, you'd really want to understand how valuable the, customer bases. And and again, guys like Dan kind of have pioneered this idea of how you value a company based on their customer base um, and kind of set the price based on on this type of data. But I think they would also want to see some churn data and understand how many people are each in each of these cohorts and whether there's the same people or lots of defectors and new people coming and all, all those sorts of things. And none of that was was disclosed in this S1. Yeah, the I thought I saw. Yeah, you're right. The um, I think they're making the argument that this swamps churn, but because they don't disclose it, you kind of you have to trust them. And he would he would want that data because you know the whole you know, again the 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 bull case here is all right. If you got super annuities, then spending ad dollars to bring super annuities in is smart, right? Because everyone you bring in the door is going to follow this cohort and start it. You know, um, you and I are looking at a table that says year one, they start at two twenty six, And then by year six, they're at 500 bucks. So they, they double uh, over their life cycle in their GTV. So um, over six years. So if, you know, if you can go buy them for a hundred bucks a pop, then you would just go and, and, spend all that money and it should be when you have a super annuity on one side, you can spend a lot of money acquiring customers on the other. For sure. True. But, uh, yeah. what to turn, there's some things that they could hide in there. Yeah. So you have to worry about that. You also side note, like uh, a thing that drives CFOs uh, crazy about marketers is you also have to have this argument about correlation and causation, right? That like uh, if I went out and bought a bunch of customers, would they maintain this, the same level of performance? Um, or with those, those purchased customers through higher advertising and through greater sales and marketing, a- uh, activities be less loyal, less valuable customers. Like, you know, that the answer varies depending on the business. Yeah. That's where I, this kind of, I come back to that bifurcation thing. Cause I think, would you say 120 million households? Yeah. 131. Yeah. So there's probably, I think it's probably pretty evenly split between convenience and value. So 
call it 60. Um, and they've got 7.7. So they've actually got, I think they've got kind of 10% share of what is the actual addressable market. Cause I don't think they're going to get any of the value oriented consumers because yeah, the, the value oriented consumer does not pay for convenience. They'll just go to the grocery store. Yeah. And again, in the <laughs> and, bottom yeah. quartile, a lot of people are shopping for, for groceries with government assistance. Um, yeah. And I don't actually think Instacart, I should double check this, but I don't believe Instacart has a way to accept SNAP payments. Yeah, I don't think the government's going you know, to have well, they, the food delivered to you. Just, you know, they do in <coughs> other, like, like, uh, like yeah, you can order groceries so. online from Walmart and pay with SNAP, but I don't think you can mm-hmm. with Instacart. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, so that's another factor. Um, and then at some point, yeah, I'm sure you'll bring this up, but the, the yeah, if you're if you're a grocer... Uh, you know, a lot of ours opt out of this and do it themselves. And they like, we have a Harris Teeter that they don't accept Instacart. Yeah. Yeah. They're not on there and they want to do their own. They want to own the customer themselves. Yeah. I, uh, I, I saved that discussion for other, um, oh, but I, okay. I think that's a Forget super important that. one. That's a teaser. Yeah. That's a, that's a teaser. excellent. That's teaser. what we call a teaser. Yeah. Cause I feel like we've gone to the ad segment of the, the breakdown. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to cover before that, Scott? No, I'm on the edge awesome. of my seat to hear what you thought about the ads biz. Yeah. So it turns out Instacart's an ad business <laughs> um, and probably shouldn't surprise anyone. You know, Scott, you alluded to the change in CEO. Uh, the The current CEO for this IPO is Fidja Simo, um, who formerly um, was a VP of advertising at Facebook. Um, so they, they brought in uh, a Facebook... Um, exec to run this business um and shoot i should have looked up what episode he was on but uh seth delaire uh was a past guest on this show when he was the chief revenue officer for instacart which was right around the time uh that that um uh, fidja joined uh instacart um so we actually had a discussion about their aspirations to become an advertising business and uh, spoiler alert, uh, it worked at Instacart, which we're going to break into. And that guest, Seth Delaire, uh, uh, subsequently was hired as the chief revenue officer at Walmart, where he's uh, building Walmart Connect, which is also working. <laughs> um, so it turns out ads are becoming an increasingly uh, important part of the ecosystem for retailers. Um, but the basic ad math at Instacart is that in 2022, the last full year of data, Instacart generated $470 million in ads. So $470 million on $28 billion in GTV means that that's about 2.6% of, of the, the spend um, that went to ads. It's 30% of their revenue today, um, and uh, it's, it's growing uh, at... 29 percent uh, so it went up 29 percent from 2022 to from 2021 to 2022 um it's grown another 24 percent in the first months uh, uh six months of 2023 so where a lot of the unit economics of their transactions have kind of stabilized and are flat the one thing that's still growing at a very fast double digit pace is the ad business and at $740 million, it's, it's already reasonably robust and they, they don't, uh, ads are not a line item on the income statement that they included. Um, like, you know, and presumably like it's not, it, you could argue it's not material against the, 
the three billion in in revenue. Um, but the uh, so we don't we don't really know exactly how profitable those ads are. But in general, we would call these ads a retail media network. Um, and the you know people argue about how profitable these retail media networks are. People particularly argue about Amazon's, but. Um, Kind of the middle of the range when people estimate how, what, how profitable these things are is that they're about 75% gross margin, right? So in theory, they should be near 99% gross margin because, um, like you don't have to make anything to sell an ad. Um, but you know, you do need some technology. You need an ad server. You need, um, administration and salespeople. You need brand safety people. You know, there, there is, some infrastructure, some of which has to scale with the ad business. Um, and so the, the kind of most common estimate that, that I see out there is like 75% of that revenue from ad business is profit. So that implies that, uh, the, the ad business contributed seven, 555 million to the, to the income statement for 2022. Um, and they were only profitable 428 uh million in 2022 so the the ad business contributed like by that sort of slice the ad business contributed you know uh covered all of their losses um and and was essentially all of their their profit um in in 2022 and it's growing faster than anything else um so it it's very clear that the ad business is a key tenant of of this Instacart model, um, and they in the management con, uh, uh, section they uh, it was kind of funny um, working for a big uh, advertising agency <laughs> because they they had to spend a fair amount of time like justifying that ads are a valuable good thing and that people are spending a lot of money on ads, <laughs> so they kind of you know paint paint this picture that consumer packaged goods companies, which are you know, most of the goods that Instacart sells, um, that, that CPGs in the U S spend about $200 billion a year on advertising. Um, and that currently about a quarter of that is digital. Um, and so, uh, the, the, um, you know, a typical CPG spends like about 30% of their gross sales on advertising. Um, and you know, at the moment, Instacart's collecting about uh, less than 3% of its sales in advertising. So I think they're saying like, Hey, advertising is super effective. It's an important part of our economic model. And there's a ton of, of potential growth for us, um, in this market and that CPGs need us. And they, um, amongst their claims about the size of their business, there, there are 5,500 brands that are advertising on Instacart today. Um, and those are, uh, at the moment, all brands that sell whose goods get sold on Instacart. So we call that uh, endemic advertisers, right? So it's it's Mondelez selling cookies um, and, and folks like that. Uh, a, a lot of advertising companies sell ads to people that aren't necessarily selling through the 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 platform. We call those non-endemic advertisers. Um, and we I don't think there are any non-endemic advertisers on Instacart as of yet. Um, but so at, at the top line, like these are, these are solid fundamentals for an ad business. Uh, like from, from my perspective, retail media networks are a super important evolution in the space. They are very important. 
I actually think for a lot of smaller retails, they get overhyped and the, there's a problem with scale with a lot of these. But Instacart appears to be one of the companies that has enough scale to build a real a real business around this. Um, the, there is a unique problem that Instacart has with ads that, um, I, you know, I think they've only been partially able to remediate so far. Um, who's paying for the ads? Right. So they talk about the brands paying for the ad. Right. It's Procter and Gamble bought the ad. But there's a lot of stakeholders with budgets at Procter and Gamble. Um, there's Mark Pritchard that buys Super Bowl ads and tries to build the brand and make people love Tide. Um, but there are also account teams that are trying to goose the sales at their account. So there's a Walmart account team and a Kroger account team and an Albertsons account team. And all of those guys have an ad budget that they want to use to sell more stuff at Walmart, Kroger, and um, uh, Albertsons, respectively. And so the big problem you have with Instacart is you spend that ad dollar with Instacart and you don't actually know which retailer it's going to uh, impact, right? Um, and so it, it's kind of like it has to come out of the top of funnel ad budget, but it's bottom of the funnel performance marketing type ads, mostly search ads. Um, and so uh, not saying that model can't work, but it's the the guys with budgets that are used to um, buying ads are used to a slightly different structure. So I, I will say that at the moment, Instacart causes a lot of consternation because it's a it's an unusual beast that people don't exactly know how to budget for or how to spend their money on. And, you know, I would assume if Instacart wants to grow a lot, they have to make that easier for for the brands to do. Yeah. So what do you think there? So this is a relatively good chunk of revenue. Where do you think they're getting it from? Is it online going offline? I mean, offline going online? Are they taking it from Google? Are they taking it from couponing or um do brands even do like newspaper inserts or still a thing? Like I know that, you know, back yeah. in the day when so there was I, no, newspaper, I, yeah, newspapers. I think brands are pretty, pretty rapidly shifting their, their dollars to digital vehicles. Um, and so two things like there's, you know, traditional kind of newspaper magazine advertising that's atrophying and, and the, the brands are replacing that with digital, um, there's a slight misnomer. The whole privacy thing and Facebook is a real thing. But you know who wasn't buying huge amounts of Facebook ads are like national CPGs with huge brand recall. Um, so, yeah. so, you know, those tended to be smaller brands and longer tail things. So it's less like, oh, uh, that the, these guys are shifting from Facebook. It's more they're shifting from old school marketing and over air television um, to, to these digital vehicles. Um, but a big chunk of it is still coming out of these trade budgets, right? And so there, there may have been a pool of money that was allocated to spend at Kroger. Um, and it used to get spent on newspaper circulars that were like Kroger ads that fell out of the newspaper. Um, and that's an increasingly ineffective, uh, vehicle. Or maybe they even got uh, spent on floor decals in the aisle at Kroger, right? You know, or like shopper marketing um, tactics or trade tactics. Um, and so increasingly the the retail media networks are getting a, a chunk of those trade dollars. And I do think Instacart is getting some of those, even though 
it's trickier to do because, you know, it's not allocated exactly to one specific retailer at the moment. Yeah. The, so what did, so the ad formats I've seen is I always get this one. That's like you threw some Quaker oats, granola bars in there. If you add these six things, we'll give you five bucks or something. I've seen a coupon and I've seen a, you know, an upsell. Hey, you've previously bought this or you may like this. Are there, are those the three main ad units or am I missing something? Yeah. So I, uh, I'm not going to speak specifically about the, the variation in ad units, but as a general rule, um, like probably I'm assuming the most predominant ads on the platform are search ads, right? So people search yeah. for products, uh, like always. And, you know, above all the organic results are a bunch of sponsored ads, right? And so off very often, those don't have a special offer in them. They're just premium placement. Um, and so a big chunk is probably those, those search ads. Um, you know, then there, there are like banner type ads that, that land either on like the homepage of a particular retailer or on a category page or a subcategory page. Um, and more often those are likely to have some call to action offer in them. So they, they might have a, a promotion or a discount of some kind. Um, and then in the digital space, um, there's a lot of what we call like top off, um, and impulse ads, which are what you were just talking about. Right. And, okay. you know, one of the big problems we have with digital grocery is when you go shopping at the grocery store, your wife sends you to the, the store with a list of 10 items and you buy all those 10 items, but then you walk by the ice cream aisle on your way to the cash wrap and you add ice cream, even though you didn't plan to buy ice cream. And then when you're standing in the cash wrap, you're snaring at that Snickers bar or that Wrigley gum, and you add that to the car and maybe a, a cold Coke to drink on the way home um, from the grocery store. So a big chunk of a traditional grocer sales are all these unplanned impulse purchases. And that, by default, happens a lot less in digital grocery. And so a lot of these ad formats are kind of our our industry's early efforts to try to reinvent digital impulse. Um, and I would, I would call it pretty imperfect at the, at the moment. <laughs> Don't you, uh, you had an interesting insight about gum or something like, because self checkouts and all the gum that serendipitous. Oh yeah. That, that, that cash wrap <laughs> used to be the most valuable real estate in a grocery store. Like the most revenue per square foot was that what we call the cash wrap, which is the, the conveyor belt that you stand in line. And actually the first thing that killed the cash wrap was not any of this digital shopping or any of these things. It was Facebook and the mobile phone. And simply because you now had something else to do when you were standing in line. So you were paying attention to your phone. And back then you were on Facebook today, you'd probably be on TikTok. Um, but you're doing that instead of being forced to stare at the gum or the the Coke with a, a suspiciously intentional, you know, sheen of dew on it. Um, and so just impulse buys went down just because the darn phones were distracting people that were standing in line. And now that you don't even walk in the store or stand in line, you know, of course we lose a lot of our, uh, uh, our impulse juice. So, um, I, th I think, you know, if we, we went from 3% online sales to 12% online sales, if we get in those 20 or 30%, it's, it's, like the economics are only going to work if uh, grocers figure out how to replace those lost impulse sales. 
at some point, does this create channel conflict? If I'm Kroger, I want these ad dollars, and they're kind of happening before <laughs> yes. the order gets to me, and you're skim- you're skimming them away from me. Like, do you think grocers wake up and say, "And uh, sorry if this is something you want to discuss later." No, let's let's pivot to that because I think that was the end of my ads yeah. uh, section. Is there anything that uh, you wanted to ask or missed about or noticed about ads that? No, I, I already said it. It just kind of reminds cool. me of Amazon. So, I, it, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, so channel conflict, what's going to happen there? Yeah. So, uh, there's some other interesting tidbits that we'll come to, but like the, the big concern about this whole thing is this is a marketplace to me that has some unique characteristics that are distinct from most other marketplaces. So, uh, you're obviously the marketplace guru on our, our show. If you think about a marketplace like Amazon, there's nearly an un, an endless supply of, potential sellers that could sell on Amazon, right? So, you know, Amazon treats them well enough. Um, but if they have some churn in sellers, if people feel like they're not making enough money selling goods on Amazon, Amazon doesn't sweat that too much because if they leave the platform, some other seller is likely right behind them to, to win that buy box. Um, there, that is not the case in grocery because these goods aren't coming from a warehouse. They're not coming from a factory in China. Most of these goods are coming from the perishable shelves of a local grocer. And there's only a finite number of those grocers in the United States of America. So where, you know, you could have kind of all these uh, arbitragers like becoming sellers on Amazon and, you know, any college kid could decide to start selling on Amazon tomorrow. Um, you kind of have to already be a traditional grocer to become a seller <laughs> on Instacart. Um, and mm-hmm. so the, the pool of potential sellers is way more constrained. And um, I would argue that many of those sellers should not be on the Instacart marketplace, right? Because uh, in, in the early days of digital grocery, you go, oh man, this is just a distraction. We don't have, ex- we're a good grocer, but we don't have expertise in digital. Now we've got a few leading customers that want to order online. Let's just outsource this whole thing to Instacart and see if customers even want it. And that that was a perfectly reasonable strategy, and a lot of grocers have obviously done that. But once you start seeing that, oh, my God, customers really do want this, and now it's 12% of our sales, and it's trending towards 20% of our sales, and it's more than half of their their total visits to our brand are now happening on that platform, do you want that to be a platform you outsourced? that also any of your competitors can outsource? Or do you want that to be some sort of owned competitive advantage, right? Um, and I tell this story all the time, so people, uh, are their eyes are probably rolling in the back of their head. But this all played out in e-commerce, right? When um, bookstores first started uh, hearing that people wanted to buy books online, they said, uh, that's a distraction. We should outsource it. What about that company in Seattle? Let's outsource it to them. And when they suddenly realized, oh, Outsourcing our book business to Amazon probably doesn't make a lot of sense, which if you're a, a younger listener, that really did happen. Right? Yeah. Like, Toys, Toys R Us and, and uh, uh, Borders Books like get, uh, gave, gave their, their e-commerce businesses to Amazon. Um, when you realize Amazon was a direct competitor, then you found another service provider to outsource it to. And the outsource provider that everyone found in the e-commerce industry was this company called GSI Commerce. And they became a, a very high-valued, fast-running business founded by this guy, Mark Rubin. And you've probably heard of him because 
Uh, he owns the Philadelphia 76ers uh, with the money he made from from GSI, and he started another very successful business, Fanatics. Um, but GSI was a tremendously uh, successful business that kind of doesn't exist today because over time, uh, Toys R Us said, you know, we better learn how to run our own e-commerce site. And Dick Sporting Goods said, we need to learn how to run our own e-commerce site. And Target said, we need to learn how to run our own own e-commerce site. And so as that market matured, all those people that were happy to outsource this nascent business to GSI um, fired GSI and brought that that uh, function in-house. And to me, Instacart feels a lot like the grocery version of GSI. Now, one reason this isn't necessarily a doom story is GSI actually does still exist. They've rebranded and they're called Radial. And what they do today is they provide a lot of the back-end services that businesses use for e-commerce, but they no longer provide the front-end and they no longer provide it under their own brand. So they're sort of a white-label service provider. And we haven't talked about it yet, but but Instacart actually has an extra revenue stream that they talk about in their S1 that just isn't economically material yet, which is they're selling a bunch of services to retailers that want to do some or all of this themselves. And they white label a lot of those services. And Instacart is trying to invest in making good versions of those services that they might be able to sell to a retailer that does decide to bring the website in-house or the picking and fulfillment in-house. Um, but so to me, when I look at this business, I go, the number one risk is um, in the long run, can they maintain the sellers that they have? And if they can't, it's not like there's an unlimited supply to replace the current ones. Um, which is a very different dynamic than, than, uh, uh, like the Amazon marketplace. And so one of the things you see that, you know, they, they're very proud of in their, their, um, S1 is, um, uh, and I should have found this, but what's, what's the count of, uh, of retailers they say? It's like 5,700. It's just kind of pop. That's the number that just popped. Yeah. We'll call that the right number unless I, I find that number, but that, but that number of, that's the number of resellers. And those resellers have 80,000 stores in the U S and represent 85% of all grocers. Right. So you look at that and go, Oh, good news, bad news. They've saturated the market. They already, they already have 85% of all grocers on their platform. So they're not going to add a bunch of sellers. Um, but the seller, but, but all the sellers love them, right? That would be the, the favorable interpretation. But the wrinkle here is a bunch of the sellers that they're claiming have kind of already moved away from Instacart, right? So included in the list of, of sellers on, on this marketplace are, um, Walmart, Kroger and Albertsons, which cumulatively are the top three grocers um, in in the market, and I think together the three of them are over fifty percent of the market. Um, the oh, it's fourteen hundred retail banners. Sorry, so, yeah, yeah. five thousand so, five hundred advertisers. I was, yeah, I've got those. That's what I was worried yeah. about. Yeah, right. so so fourteen hundred retail banners representing eighty thousand stores, representing eighty five percent of the U.S. grocery market. But again, uh, today Walmart, Kroger, and Albertsons are in that that list and those are all grocers that are investing huge amounts of money in building their own capability and today that capability sits beside instacart or maybe in front of instacart and they're only using instacart as kind of overflow um but it's 
it's way less certain to me. And there was not a lot of like, you know, confidence instilling information in the S1 to say, oh, we're going to be able to retain Kroger as a customer or we're going to be able to retain Albertsons as a customer. And to me, it's a big risk for their current business model if they can't. And a huge percent of those of the a huge portion of the 85 percent of the market share they're saying they have like is those three companies. And then after those three companies, which have already expressed like clear intent to invest in their own capability, there are other giant grocers that haven't expressed an interest, but they need to. Right. And so you and I'm specifically thinking of like Aldi and Costco are two huge grocers in the U.S. that, you know, are not very digitally mature and have not seemed to want to invest a lot of their their own uh, uh, resources in digital. But if they're going to be around in 20 years, I'm pretty confident that they're going to have to figure it out. And it's not just going to be outsourcing it to Instacart. So I look at a big chunk of those um, marketplace sellers on Instacart and I go, um, that that is a little risky. And, you know, a lot of their volume is probably concentrated in those sellers that are at risk. And you, and you go, is there a business if all the big guys leave and it's just all the independent grocers? There might be, but the economics probably look a lot different than this. Very cool. So you're going to, are you going to be a buyer? Uh, I, I am not. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah. If, if I could have gotten in early, <laughs> uh, like I, I would love to be uh, at the 76er games uh, <laughs> with, with Mark Rubin, but I, I'm not sure that the retail price like has, has some risk cooked into it because of that, yeah. that problem. Now, again, you know, radial is a decent little business and could, could, uh, you know, uh, carrot services for Instacart be a, Decent little business one day, sure. Um, you know, the counter argument, if I'm trying to be fair here, is what I think an Instacart exec would say is, hey, Jason, like we had two things. We, we, we're the outsource capability for some of these retailers that don't have that capability, but we're also a marketplace with a bunch of loyal customers and we're bringing customers and visits to, uh, Kroger, which is why Kroger isn't going to fire us. Right. Um, yeah. But per your point, like, really, where are they getting those customers? Right. Like they're not, you know, they're not making a huge investment in sales and marketing. They haven't like, you know, demonstrated some magical top of funnel capability to acquire in consumers. Like I would argue they're acquiring most of their, their primary acquisition strategy is to acquire great sellers that already have consumers and, and take over the that business for those 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 um, banners. So. That that to me puts this this whole thing at risk. Like, is there something I'm missing about that, Scott? Or does that at least? It's a risk. You know, they would probably argue they have data that says they're largely incremental. And uh, you know, my guess is the grocers aren't sophisticated enough to be able to run an analysis on that. So, yeah, yeah, Walmart uh, certainly is, but not you know. Yeah, you, you know, you, grocery's better the long tail of grocery is pretty, pretty, yeah. pretty thin and pretty like grocery is a super hard business that requires a lot of unique capabilities. Um, and the people that, you know, acquired those capabilities over 60 years are not necessarily the people you're going to expect to be the the first fastest digital adopters. Um, and like side note in favor of all the, the hardworking grocers out there, I mean, it's the one business that Amazon has invested billions in and can't figure out how to do properly. Right. So, um, so it is legitimately hard. Um, 
I do. I did have a couple other tidbits on the. Uh, if, if we're done talking about the giant elephant in the room that is their their seller concentration, um, there were a couple other tidbits that jumped out at me in the S one. Do you want to? Should we run down those real quick? Yeah, far away. Yeah. So there is another interesting part of the thing that I uh, was surprised by, uh, which is Instacart's membership program. So Instacart has a membership program called Instacart Plus, and it turns out all this revenue is coming from members, um, which, again, is another favorable trend. We saw that the cohort analysis was pretty favorable, um, but uh, 57% of Instacart's revenue comes from people that pay a monthly or annual fee to get free shipping from Instacart. So that are members of this Instacart plus program and 5.1 million of the 7.7 million active shoppers are in the program. Um, and those, those members spend disproportionately more like over six X more than non-members spend. Um, so this is like you, you spend your, your monthly fee, or I think it's like a hundred dollars annually. And for that, you get unlimited free, free delivery. Um, you get reduced service fees. You get credit back on eligible pickup orders. Like if you, if you do curbside pickup and you get some other exclusive benefits. So, uh, they, they have kind of monetized a membership program. So you could think of this as a very baby Costco, but that if this all scales, that's a, um, another potential interesting, um, revenue scheme. Uh, I did mention I was pretty excited. They had to kind of make the pitch for digital grocery. And so they, um, you know, they, they do talk a lot about a hey, groceries accelerated to 12%, um, pen- digital groceries accelerated to 12% penetration, uh, that, that has accelerated a lot in the last three years as a result of COVID. Um, and they spend a lot of time talking about the distinction between, delivery of groceries and pickup of groceries and Instacart plays in both. But here's kind of an interesting thing uh, about it's a, it's near 50, 50 split right now. Um, The the delivery orders um, Instacart is primarily competing with other digitally native digital grocers. So they're competing with um, shipped, which is owned by target they're competing with DoorDash and Uber Eats, which if you haven't been following it, both have pivoted into grocery. Uh, they're competing with uh, GoPuff. Um, and, and so these are other like digitally native companies that kind of didn't exist in the space until until digital came along. Um, but the other half of the business is pickup. And 95% of all the pickup business is getting fulfilled by a traditional brick and mortar grocery store with a parking lot. Um, and so like there is, you know, there are these like interesting bifurcated segments where, you know, some of Instacart's revenue, they're competing against, um, you know, Amazon, Uber and, and, uh, um, DoorDash and other parts of their business. They're, they're competing for customers against Walmart, Kroger and Albertson. So, um, I, I found that, um, kind of a, an interesting, uh, evaluation, um, you know, again, I think a lot of people might have been surprised in the S1 to see that they're competing with with uh, Uber and DoorDash. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing that I found interesting, and I, this might be obligatory now, but I think in Instacart's case, it's kind of true. Um, they spent a fair amount of time talking about how they're leaning into AI. Um, mm-hmm. And so they, they both, you know, were very early adopters of like, uh, licensing open AIs, um, a large language model to have, a an AI, um, 
uh, uh, chat assistant on Instacart's app and website. They were one of the, uh, they were a launch partner that had a plugin on OpenAI's website, uh, to let you order, order groceries from chat GPT. Um, and they've, they've done at least like four acquisitions in the like AI enablement space. So they've, they've acquired companies, um, like Rosie, which is, uh, uh, AI pricing and dynamic pricing. Uh, they acquired Eversight, which is a promotion engine. Um, the, uh, uh, Caper Foodstorm, um, is a software company that, that, uh, does some like kiosk software that they can sell to, to retailers as part of their carrot services. So, um, that, I don't know, you, you tell me, like, I, I suspect that every S1 we, we do see for the next 18 months is going to have to have an AI section. Um, and it, it was interesting to read about like what they, what they've done in the AI space. Oh yeah. Everyone like, you know, Salesforce is spending all their time with this giant matrix of how AI is getting integrated in every product. Everyone is uh, trying to ride the wave, but NVIDIA is making all the money. So <laughs> They, they, uh, it's off topic, but they printed just an incredible quarter of just nothing but, you know, yeah, way more valuable than Intel profit that just showed up at the door. It was yeah. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great story for another episode. Um, but, uh, Scott, anything else, uh, that we, we want to cover in this first look at, uh, Instacart's S1? No, our, our brand promise is to bring the heat uh, on these and a deep dive. This uh, I lost track when we started, but this is a very deep dive. So uh, we appreciate you guys sticking with us to the end. There there was a lot of good stuff on here, and we really only got to the tip of the iceberg. But I do encourage you to print out the uh, those relevant pages of the S1 we talked about, 101 to 124 or 25. Um, that's the really good stuff, and it's worth a read if you're in the space and, and into this market as we are, which I... I'm going to guess a lot of you are uh, also pretty geeky about this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And so I will definitely put a link to the S1 in there. Um, and uh, until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to the Jason and Scott show for all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing. Subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 